Well, again, good morning, and I know we have a number of, of folks who are visiting with us this morning and here for the first time, and uh, we are in the middle of a teaching and a practice series uh, that's part of a larger scope, a larger effort uh, on, that our church is undertaking, looking at what it means for us as the people of God to be formed and shaped and transformed by the Spirit of God. Andrea mentioned this uh, as she was leading us through uh, our liturgy of um, uh, uh, call to worship and benediction, uh, or excuse me, call to worship, confession, and assurance, that, that we, something that we fundamentally believe as a church is that God has not just called us to be Christians in our minds, but that God has, be, has called us and desires us to be followers of Jesus Christ in our whole person, with all of who we are. And that's what we talked about last week together. We looked at this, this fundamental foundational truth that God created us to be whole people, body and spirit, working in unity together to reflect and to represent the unity of the God whom we serve. God is, is a unified being, Father, Son, and spirit, in perfect unity with each other, in perfect relationship with each other. And God created men and women on this earth to be a reflection of him, to rule and to govern this earth in relationship with him and in relationship with each other and reflecting him. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. And so last week, we looked at that from Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. We also looked at the fact that from Romans chapter 8, that when we talk about Jesus Christ bringing redemption, we talk about it from a scriptural point of view, that Jesus Christ has not only brought redemption to our spirits, bringing us from death, nation. The fact that God is life and death and resurrection, but that the incarnation, the fact that God became man and took on flesh, took on a human body and lived on this earth shows us that the redemption of God is not just a redemption of our spirits, but it's also a redemption of our bodies. That Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that we, along with all of creation, long and groan for God to make all things right, to make all things new, to redeem everything that we await and we look forward to the redemption of our bodies. And so when we talk about spiritual formation, when we talk about the work of God's Spirit in those of us who believe, shaping us and transforming us. God is doing that to that end. Because one day we believe that God will make all things new, that God will redeem us, not just in a spiritual way, but in a real, physical, tangible way that we, along with all of creation, will once again reflect God's original intent that we would dwell with God in the presence of God, be unified together with each other, and with our Creator. And so that's why we believe that spiritual formation is important. Because we're not just trying to fill our heads with knowledge. We're not just trying to live on some abstract, ethereal, spiritual plane. But we're real people living in a real world. You are 
your body. I am my body. And the work that God wants to do in you and in me is a work that is done in our bodies. And so as we talk about spiritual formation, we are talking about practices, practices that we see in the Scripture, practices that we see present in the life of Jesus that reconnect that sense of body and spirit, that we get the truth of who God is, who we are, and how to make sense of this world that we live in into our real lived experience. And so last week, this morning, and over the next two weeks, we are talking about together the practice of fasting and the practice of the practice of fasting and the practice of feasting. Uh, it's hard to believe that it's almost 20 years ago uh, that we as a nation experienced the tragic events of 9-11. Uh, and I know most of us in this room are old enough to probably remember where we were during that time, uh, what, what we were experiencing when we first saw it on the news, and then just the aftermath of all of those things. Uh, as a country, for most of us, we had never seen or experienced tragedy like this, death like this on that scale. It, it, it seemed, I know for me, like kind of an out-of-body experience as I was watching the events unfold on the news and then just the, the subsequent days and weeks after that as we were picking up the pieces, trying to make sense of what happened. And I don't know if those of you who are old enough to remember that time, if you got this sense, but for me, it was as if normal life stopped. Right? Like when you experience a tragedy like that, life as we knew it before seemed different, seemed kind of otherworldly. That the normal things that, that we did, you know, like I was a freshman in college at the time. And so, like going to class, uh, hanging out and having fun with my friends, going to, to work, going to my job, it, it just it didn't feel quite right. It felt a little off. There was this massive tragedy, massive loss of life. This thing had happened. Our nation was wounded. Our safety, our way of life felt threatened. People that, that maybe we knew, but definitely people who were loved had died in this tragic way. And there was fear and confusion and anger and, and grief, this feeling of powerlessness that many people felt just walking around day in and day out in the, in the days and the weeks following 9-11. And I remember asking this, like, what do I do with these feelings? How do I express just this deep sense of, of grief and of confusion, of just feeling out of place? What do I do with that? That wasn't just something I was thinking about. It wasn't just something that was, it wasn't, it wasn't just a thought in my mind. It was something I carried around in my body, and I didn't quite know what to do with it because I had to get back to normal life. I had to get back to the things that were present. But yet just moving on, moving forward, just seemed out of place. It didn't feel quite right. How, when we experience grief, how do we express ourselves in these deep moments that feel overwhelming? 
when we face these, I want to call them sacred moments, these moments in life that feel so real, these moments in life that are so raw and leave us feeling exposed at our deepest core, these moments in life that, that feel like, man, this is not what life is supposed to be. This is not what things are supposed to look like. This is not how people are, expo- are supposed to experience life. How do we express that? God in his mercy and in his grace has invited us to cry out to him in those moments with our spirit. We do that in prayer. We see that all throughout the Psalms. The psalmist crying out to God in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of death and grief, sickness, in the, in, in the face of fear, in the face of impending doom. The psalmists cry out to God because they know God has invited them into that space to make those feelings, those deep, raw feelings known to him. But as I want to talk about this morning, God has also invited us to cry out to him with our bodies, to cry out for his presence, for his nearness, to make, some, to, to, to make sense somehow of what we're experiencing, to cry out to him with our bodies. And that practice is called fasting. That practice scripturally is called fasting. And so over the next few minutes, I want to look with you from the scriptures at fasting as a response, a bodily response to a sacred moment. Theologian Scott McKnight says that fasting is the body talking, what the spirit yearns, what the soul longs for, and what the mind knows to be true. Now, I just want to say up front and acknowledge that probably very few of us in this room have any experience with fasting. It's not something that we talk about a lot in the evangelical church. It's not something that we practice together a lot in the evangelical church. And even as your pastor, I stand up here and teach this as someone who isn't practicing this and who doesn't have a long history of this. And so as we come to the scriptures this morning, I want us to come with open hearts and open minds willing to hear and to receive uh, what God would say to us. Because when we thumb through the pages of Scripture, what we see is that the people of God continually choose to give up food, to give up water sometimes for a period of time in response to a sacred and mostly grievous moment in their life, in response to death and tragedy in response to illness and disease, physical infirmities, in response to the failure and the sins of others, sin of our response to conviction of our own sin and the sin of our nation. When we face these moments together and wonder how we should respond, God invites us to respond through fasting. Would you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 1? We're going to look at a number of different scriptures over the next few minutes. I'm not going to dive into each one at length. 
But I just want you to see from Scripture what I'm talking about and see that I'm not making this up. 2 Samuel chapter 1. And in verses 1 through 12 of 2 Samuel chapter 1, we are confronted with the death of the king of Israel, King Saul, and his son Jonathan. And we see here that after the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David was the anointed king of Israel. God had removed his hand from King Saul because Saul had refused to follow God and had gone his own way. God had told David, you will be the next king. But David wasn't king yet. David wasn't king yet, and he was hiding from Saul because Saul was chastening, chasing him down, trying to kill him because David was a threat. David said to this man, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And, so all, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. And if you skip down a few verses to verse 11, we read that David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all of the men who were with him. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Jonathan was David's closest friend. Saul, even though he was trying to kill David, was a man that David still respected, that David still acknowledged as king because David knew that God had not removed Saul from power yet. And still, when David heard that this man, that this king was dead, David wept. David tore his just, and David fasted in grief. If you turn over a few pages to 2 Samuel 3, we won't read all these verses, but a, a few days later, we read of a man named Abner, who was the commander of Saul's army, a man who had gone up against David and his men to fight David, who had sought the life of David, came to David and made peace with David. And David was so thrilled about this that he threw a feast in celebration. That a man who was once his enemy had now come over and made peace and joined him. But David had a man in his ranks named Joab, a warrior whom Abner had killed his brother. Abner had killed Joab's brother. And unbeknownst to David, after David had made peace with Abner, after David had thrown a feast because Abner had come over in peace, Joab went and took revenge and killed Abner. And we read in 2 Samuel 3, verse 35, that David was so overcome by grief, was so, was so overcome by grief that he wouldn't eat. And all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was 
yet day. But David swore, saying, God, do so to me and more also, if I taste bread or anything else, till the sun goes down. What we see here in the life of David is this deep, deep experience of grief. Grief so deep that he didn't want to eat. Grief so deep that all that seemed right to him was to cover himself in sackcloth, to pour ashes on his head, to fast from eating food. You see, what we, what we see here in the life of David is that his soul, his spirit, was in so much pain over the death of Saul and Jonathan and Abner that he put his body underneath that same kind of pain. That his body felt the discomfort that his spirit was experiencing. Some of you in this room know what this is like. The loss of someone that you deeply love. A loss so great that it feels, though, that as a, as a part of your soul is missing. A part of who you are is gone. Our culture, sadly, encourages us to grieve in private. To grieve on the inside. To grieve in ways that don't make other people feel uncomfortable because of your loss. But what we see in Scripture is something the exact opposite. Because what we see is that God encourages His people not to pretend as though death and tragedy is something that is not as painful as it really is. But that not only in our spirit, but then in our bodies, we acknowledge that death is the enemy, that death is painful, that death is destructive, that when we deprive ourselves of food, we are doing it in a way to make our bodies feel the pain and the loss that we experience, the pain and the loss that others experience. What if we, as a community of people, along with our tears, along with our voices in prayer. We're a community that also with our bodies cried out in grief that this is not what should be. This is not what God intends. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 35. Psalm chapter 35. Again, we find David in this psalm crying out to God because there are people who seek his life, people who devise evil against him, people he calls malicious witnesses. But look at verses 30, uh, chapter 35, verses 11 through 14. He calls them Malay witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay evil. They pay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. 
I prayed with heads bowed, with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. You know why David was called a man after God's own heart? This is why. This is why. That these men who were his enemies, that who sought to do him harm, that were out to repay his goodness to them with evil, he says when they were sick, when they were ill, that he afflicted his own body, that he grieved for them, that he fasted because he was in grief over their condition. Often we know that when those we love, when those we are in relationship are experiencing disease and illness and sickness, we feel like we are up against the odds. Sometimes we can feel like we are hopeless in the face of this, these physical infirmities. But what we see from Scripture in this case and in others, that when we pray for the sick, when we lay our hands on those who are ill, when we plead with God to heal them, we can also fast on their behalf. The fasting, again, brings our body into a place of discomfort, that we not only are lifting and pleading, pleading on their behalf that God would heal them, but we are identifying with their suffering. We are identifying with their pain. And we are saying, God, I am willing to afflict myself, to know what they're going through, to experiencing their pain as I pray for you to bring healing, to feel in a real physical way our need for God's presence, our need for God to show up with his healing power in that moment. Over and over again, we see that when people are sick, when people are ill, when people are facing insurmountable odds, we see God show up in great ways, in miraculous ways. Combine and pair our prayers on behalf of the sick with fasting and afflicting our own bodies. We experience God's presence to new depths. We experience solidarity with those who are ill. We fast in response to death and to tragedy. We fast in response to illness and sickness of those that we love. We also fast in response to the failures and the sins of other people. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, hear these words. If you remember from our time in Exodus just a few months ago, Moses was on the top of Mount Sinai meeting with God in the presence of God. And while he was there, God's people decided that they wanted to worship another God, that they were distrustful of Moses' leadership. They were distrustful of whether or not God was truly going to show up, and they built this image, this golden calf. And Moses came down after meeting with God. He came down with words from God for God's people as a way of God saying, I am with you. I am covenanting with you. This is my relationship with you, only to find that those same people were worshiping another God. 
And in verses 13 through 20 of Deuteronomy 9, we see that Moses, in response to that, is deeply, deeply grieved. He says, furthermore, the Lord says to me, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down the mountain and the mountain was burning with fire and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. Then I laid prostrate before the Lord as before. Forty days, forty nights, I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and the hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time time. Why was Moses so tore up about this? Why would he be willing to go without food and water for 40 days because of this? Moses saw the idolatry of Israel from God's perspective. When he saw their idolatry, when he saw their rebellion, when, they, when he saw that they had turned away from God, it was so grievous to Moses that all he could do was fall down before the Lord and plead with God on behalf of the people. The golden calf, Moses before God laying prostrate on the ground. We read in, later on in that story that when Moses came back down, he took the calf and he ground it up into dust, and poured it in the water, and made the people drink it. All of these things are physical, graphic, bodily things, not just some spiritual thing that we read here. Moses saw this sin from God's point of view, and all he could do was fall on his face and plead with God. It didn't feel right to eat. It didn't feel right to drink. It felt right to plead with God on behalf of his people. Again, theologian Scott McKnight writes this, We have become a culture of cultural critics and a church of church critics. Perhaps more of us need to be quick to convert our concern for the moral failures of others into bodily pleading for them instead of public words against them. So often when we look at the lives of others who have turned away from God, who have fallen away from what they once believed, and let's be honest, it seems like every week that is happening. Every week we hear of another Christian leader who has walked away, who has renounced their faith, who has been caught in some kind of moral failure. We know people in our own lives that once followed the Lord, who have turned away from him. And it's so easy to stand at a distance and lob criticism, to lob insults. 
What if we were a people who were so grieved over those things that we fasted? That we pleaded before God. That it tore us up so much to see people who had once followed the Lord turning away that it didn't even feel right for us to do normal things. That we were so concerned for their soul that we pleaded to God on their behalf. We fast and respond to death and to tragedy, response to illness and sickness, in response to the failure and the sins of others, and lastly, in response to the conviction of our own sin. I think of the story of Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah, who led a group of Israelites out of Babylon, where they had been held captive and in exile for over 70 years, back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple, to to reestablish their life as God's people. And yet when they returned back to the land, they found other Jews who had been living there during the time. And what had happened is that these Jews had began to marry people from other tribes and other nations, people who had worshipped other gods. And they found that this had led them further and further away from the one true God. They were idolatrous. This was prohibited by God because he knew that this would happen. And when Nehemiah and Ezra were confronted by this, when they saw what had happened, they tore their clothes. They removed themselves and they laid before God and they fasted before God. They identified with the people. It wasn't just their people's sin, it was their sin as well. And in response to that, they fasted. In response to that, they pleaded with God, not only in their spirit, but in their bodies as well. Throughout the Old Testament, this is the most common fast. God convicting his people of sin and his people responding in repentance and fasting. And that word repentance in the Hebrew is just translated to turn around, to turn around. And in a spiritual sense, in a metaphorical sense, when we repent, it's like, you know, the phrase we use, we're turning over a new leaf. We're doing something different We're turning around and we're changing our lives. And because the Israelites and the Hebrews saw the person that God had created as a unified person, not just a spiritual person, not just a physical person, but a spiritual and physical person, a whole person that so often they expressed their spiritual repentance with bodily turning. Bodily fasting, physical fasting, the conviction and the realization of sin and a need for God's mercy was so sacred, was such a sacred moment. They were empathizing with God's grief over their own sin. That again, it didn't feel right to eat. It didn't feel right to drink. Normal life couldn't go on as it, as it would. All that was left was to fast and to grieve over their own sin and commit to turning away from that sin. When we think about fasting, 
We can think about it in a wrong way. We can think about it in a right way. The wrong way that we tend to think about fasting is an instrumental way. We think that if we fast, God will do this. If I fast, then God will give me this. But what we see in the scriptures is instead of an instrumental view of fasting, we see a responsive view. That when we fast, we are bringing our whole selves in tune with who God is. In tune with God's perspective of that moment. The results that we want may happen. People may be healed. If you remember just a, a couple of months ago, we shared uh, Stephen, Steve Coyle Jr., who many of you know has been in the NICU for over 50-some days, who's recently been released, praise God, and able to come home. But his parents reached out to many of us because they were at an impasse. The doctors didn't know what to do. They said, would you pray? We know you have been praying. Would you fast with us as well? And we prayed and we fasted. And the next day they showed up to the hospital. And the doctor says, we don't know what has happened. But something has turned around. Something's happened here. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes our prayers, along with our fasting, moves God in certain ways. Sometimes people are healed. Sometimes our experience of God's grace is deeper. Sometimes the turning it's people that we love back to God, but sometimes it doesn't. Most of the time in Scripture, when we see fasting, it's just described, they fasted. They fasted. The point of fasting is empathy with God's perspective. Empathy with God's perception of the moment. The practice of fasting connects our body and our spirit, our whole person, to God's perspective and to his presence. Dallas Willard writes that human life cannot flourish as God intended it to. In a divinely inspired and upheld corporate rule over this grand globe, if we see ourselves as on our own. And especially if we struggle to preserve ourselves as on our own. When we are in isolation with, from God and not in the proper social bonds with others, we cannot rule the earth for good as God has intended us to. Fasting is a practice that helps us respond to these sacred, deep, grievous moments in our lives in a way that actively reminds us of our reality. That being fully human is existing in this world as the image of God. Being in right relationship with God. Being in right relationship with each other as we do the work of God on this earth. The presence of evil and death disrupts creation. It distorts our identity as human beings, as image bearers of God. Death, illness and disease, sin are in opposition to who God is and his desire for creation. And when we fast, when we commit to practice in our bodies 
and acknowledge in our bodies what we know to be true in our minds and in our spirits. God, in his mercy and in his grace, allows us to see things from his perspective, to feel what he feels, to acknowledge the reality that he says is true, that one day he will make all things new. God, in his mercy and his grace, has invited us to cry out for his presence, to cry out for his presence with our bodies, fasting his body and spirit, longing to be fully human and acknowledging that God's presence and his transformation. In Matthew chapter 9, some of John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, come to Jesus and to his disciples with a question. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 14, Then the disciples of John came to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. What Jesus is saying here is that I have come as the bridegroom. I have come in present power. The glory of God was present with them in Jesus Christ. It was a time to feast. It was a time to rejoice. It was a time to acknowledge that God's presence is here with us. But Jesus knew that he would soon go away. He would go back to his father and then his disciples would fast. They would fast because they longed for him to return again and to return in power. We as followers of Jesus can fast acknowledging that our Messiah, acknowledging that our Savior is coming again. Life with God under the rule of God is the life that you were made for, is the life that I was made for. All of us who are living in harmony with Him, all of us living in harmony with each other, all of us being representatives of the reality of who He is, what he says is true, what he is doing in this world. I want to encourage us as a community of faith to be people who aren't afraid to fast, people who don't see fasting as weird, people who don't see fasting as some radical monkish practice, but people who see and practice fasting in a way in which we draw ourselves into alignment with God's perspective, to see life and the different moments in life as he sees them, to feel what he feels in them, to align ourselves with each other in moments of pain, in moments of grief, in moments of sadness, in moments of conviction, to starve our bodies so that our souls may be filled with the presence of God. In our missional community groups over the next few weeks, we're going to practice fasting together. We're going to talk a little bit more about what this looks like in certain situations, and we're going to practice it together. But this morning, as we come to our time of communion, 
which is food, bread to be eaten, juice to be drank. They are symbols of God's presence filling us. That while the bridegroom is away, that God in his grace, through his spirit and through his church, is making himself known in our lives. That we are not on our own. That we are not in this life by ourselves. But that God is with us and that we are with each other. And so I want to invite you this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have put your faith in Jesus, to come and to take a piece of the bread, to dip it in the juice. We'll have stations to my right and to my left. We'll have a gluten-free station in the back for those of you who may need that. But come, come as a declaration that we are people who are embodied spirits, people who are whole, people who God is making new, renewing day by day by day through the power of his spirit. God, we acknowledge that this morning. We acknowledge that you love us. We acknowledge that you are with us. We acknowledge our tendency to just kind of float through life, to think that, that, that we are just going from the one thing to the next, and it's just us, and that we're dealing with this on our own. Forgive us for the tendency of just thinking of ourselves as spiritual people, as people who, if we just know the right things or believe the right things, that that's really what matters. Lord, I pray that we would be individuals, that we would be a community of people who see ourselves as whole, body and spirit, that we would live with the hope that you are not only redeeming us spiritually, but one day you will bring about the redemption of our bodies. And I pray that as we live in that hope, we will be a testimony of hope and of that peace to the world around us, that they would see people who are so heavenly minded that we are of much earthly good that we would work for the good of our community, that we would work for the healing of our community, that as our community grieves, as our community experiences the effects of sin and death, that we would be people who proclaim not only by our words, but by our lives, the hope that we have in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.